Now is the time for the leader to qualify. Please stand while sharing so all may see and hear. <laughs> um, okay, I will definitely keep the focus on my recovery in OA, and I will get a five-minute warning before 9.15. So, okay. Um, I'm Tracy. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. And I have so much affection for this meeting, even though it is no longer where it was for many, many years in the log cabin. My first ever meeting, which was sometime around September of 1986, was at the log cabin where this meeting originally was. And I ate 12 pieces of toast because I was, of course, never going to do that again and went to the 2 o'clock meeting in the afternoon and cried the entire way through. And my journey began. Um, makes me feel very emotional. Now, um, I'm about 31 and a half years of back-to-back, day and night abstinence. And that's more than half my life. Um, I came to OA desperate, desperate. I was so miserable being me. And even though my outsides... um, So I have multiple compulsive addictive behaviors. Multiple. Like I qualify for most programs other than gambling. And I don't know if that was because I was cheap or because it just didn't make my brain do what gamblers do. Like I had lots of things I like to do that were very exciting. Um, One of my favorites was moving from country to country and getting a new boyfriend and learning a new language. And that would last about 18 months. And then I, you know, have to like switch again. Um, In any case... Because I had so many choices of compulsive behaviors, my weight was basically, and I didn't bring my pictures today, I forgot, but like my top weight was probably 160-something, and my bottom weight was around 100. And I went from one to the other in three months. But I was never 300 or 70, because on any given day, I could pick four or five different compulsive behaviors, not consciously, and just do those. And so the food was kind of... It was the main one, but it was one among many. And compulsive exercising was also part of the repertoire. So, you know, I kind of generally managed my in and out of calorie intake by being insane. But I looked pretty normal most of the time. Um, And if you didn't see me in the period between the three months that I was, you know, 105 and the and then the three years that I was around 150, 60, whatever, if you didn't see me during that period, you would just think like, oh, she's a kind of a chubby five foot three girl, or, you know, she's on the thinner side, but I never looked sick. I never weighed under 100, so I wasn't anorexic. I, you know, had all these things that I didn't do, so I wasn't whatever the qualification would be. Um, so... Back, back up here. Um, I know about a third of you, I think, and you've heard my story many times, so it's going to be the same one. Um, I am the oldest of three girls. I was born into a family where what things looked like on the outside was the most important thing ever. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. But when I was born, I was born with a cleft lip and palate. So I was immediately not perfect. In fact, I was defective. 
That's what they call it, a birth defect. And the fact of that and the fact that at this point the scar is like an inch long that is visible on the outside um, is kind of irrelevant because that defectiveness was my label for life until I got here and for a few years when I was here because it took a while to kind of change a pattern that I had for 26 years. Um, so no matter how much I achieved, and I was one of those kids that was kind of good at lots of things, um, I loved to read, I loved school, I loved ballet, I, I, could, I was good at music, I mean, I like athletics, I was just good at stuff. So on the outside, it looked like I was thriving. And in some ways I was, but what happened, and this, in my case, I know this is not true for everybody, but from birth, really, I started performing. And so what I could show you, and I was really good at showing you what I was pretty sure you wanted to see, what I could show you was completely detached from how I felt in on the inside. But I didn't really know that completely because it wasn't like my family was having conversations about feelings or what was really going on with some of the other kids because, you know, these things show up socially as much as they show up inside. And but I always had friends and I always, you know, like I won awards and I did all that kind of stuff. But I remember thinking in seventh grade, so I was 11, um, if I'm not cheerful and funny all the time, I will not have any friends. And so somehow my job was to be cheerful and funny. And I also knew and I think I knew this before I was 12, um, that my job in life was to suffer and be punished. Because I was born like that, right? I mean, it's already marked. It was karma. God hated me. If there was even a God, I wasn't sure. But if there was, he hated me or it hated me. And so I lived this very dramatically different life on the outside and the inside. And I was kind of like an empty paper mache. Um, I didn't really know. I was trying really hard to find things. I was kind of on a spiritual quest from a very young age, reading things and going to different places. But because of that split between my inside and my outside, I could never quite link. Anyway, I kept performing. I kept doing well. I you know, went to college and um, I discovered you know, kind of anorexia and bulimia and that helped along with the compulsive exercise and um, also compulsive busyness and I must say I haven't exactly given that one up because um, I still love doing lots of things but the food obsession started pretty young but I wasn't aware of it until I got into recovery you know my mom and I were so thrilled that I could fit into a toddler 6x skirt when I was in 7th grade that is insane. I mean, who cares if their 12-year-old fits in a skirt that's made for a six-year-old? That's just weird. But we were very proud of that. And there was this need to kind of look okay on the outside because of how terrible I felt on the inside. And the food behaviors and the sneaking and the insanity just kind of got worse and worse and worse as I got older. And then at a certain point, the kind of restricting behavior didn't really work. 
And you can only compulsively exercise so much if you're going to college full time and rehearsing for shows, you know, and all. I mean, I was busy, so, you know, I could exercise like twice a day. I could run four or five miles, but I couldn't do it all day long. And so then I moved away to a different country and it kind of like went to hell in a handbasket. Um, and I gained, you know, like 60 pounds in less than three months. And meanwhile, the self-hatred was the same. It was now focused on my thighs instead of whatever else. But that self-hatred and the viciousness of how I talked to myself all the time um, was maybe more about food and my body. But it was the same as it had always been. It was just I couldn't run away from it as well. And then it kind of, over the next few years, after I was, you know, living away and working, and I had this career that sounded glamorous if you talked about it, but it was really, you know, schlepping a lot of bags around a lot of the time. Um, And I went to really great places for vacations and had these boyfriends, um, that's what I thought they were, in all these different countries, and it sounded fabulous. But meanwhile... I can see it now with a lot of hindsight. Like, I was kind of catching up to me. And um, what ended up happening was I had to move back to America, not by choice. And I landed here in Los Angeles, which is where my parents had grown up, living with my grandfather, riding a moped. It took me eight months to get a job in my field. And so, meanwhile, I had to be a waitress. And I wore a burgundy polyester skirt that matched my burgundy hair at the time. And I could no longer hide from that self-hatred. Because there was nothing left to hide behind. I didn't live anywhere interesting. I certainly had no interesting boyfriend. I felt like I was... I couldn't even speak other languages and pretend like I was somebody else. I, like, smack dab ran into myself. And it was the most horrible experience of my life. And when people talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, again, on the outside, it didn't look that bad. I was probably 15 pounds more than I am now. But on the inside, it was hell. And I couldn't make it go away. So, circuitously, the waitress job helped me find people who were practicing uh, a program of recovery because they came to the restaurant twice a week and had tea. And then I had a friend from college who happened to be going to a different 12-step program that at the time I didn't think I qualified for. Later I realized, like, I actually do qualify. But So I started going to some not OA meetings, but knew immediately, like, when I heard about OA, this is where I needed to be. And so that fateful day... Um, In September of 1986, I went to the log cabin. And it took me a couple months to get abstinent because I was trying to be very strict. Very strict. I love very strict. The stricter, the better. And that just, for me, didn't work. Um, I couldn't have an abstinence that if I ate two green beans too many, I had to start over because then, you know, I would just start over all the time. Um, And my sponsor, who I got pretty quickly, said, what's the thing you think you can do and probably be successful with? And start with that. 
So I started with no bulimia and no anorexia in any form, including some of the ones I learned about here. And that has been... (laughs) And I've never had a colonic, I must say. Um, That has been my abstinence ever since. Um, I've had various food plans. And typically, I do what I call the 90-10 plan. And 90% of the time, it's actually like 95% of the time. I don't eat sugar or sugary things, and I don't eat flour or bready things, um, and eat pretty healthy three times a day, and not really snack, but if I want a snack of fruit or protein or something like that, that's fine. That's 95% of the time, and 5% of the time it's something else, and that has worked for me so that I can maintain a healthy weight and fit in the same clothes um, for you know, I don't know, 20 years, a long time. I mean, if not longer than that, maybe 25 years of my abstinence. It took me a while to kind of find that, but that works for me, and I know that doesn't work for everybody. But then if I want a sugary treat or a bready kind of treat every so often, which might mean every three months or every six months, if I'm in a fit spiritual condition... um, I might choose to do that and let somebody know, and then it's the end of that. Um, Let me talk about my program, because I think I have not talked about it very much. I have been really pretty diligent from the very beginning. Desperation is a really good motivator. Um, I like to say that either your head is on fire, your heart is on fire, or your ass is on fire when you come to a 12-step room. And for some of us, it's all three. And I was in that category. Um, so I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. I got a, in writing. I got a commitment. Um, I was involved with people who were in recovery. It was probably good that I had moved from another country and come back here and was kind of alone-ish and lost-ish because I had to reach out. And thank God. You know, because this program really saved my life. And getting some food sanity, which took a while, but again, the abstinence started right away. Um, And I used lots and lots of our OA tools. You know, I made lots of phone calls and I read the literature. Um, I wanted to change a lot of it because it was so old fashioned. Um, I knew I could do a much better job. But I did the work that was described, you know, like how it works. I did that. And I continue to do that. Um, I'm one of those people that I believe I need to continue working the steps. One through 12 and back to one, even if I'm doing, you know, 10 steps on a regular basis or whatever. Because what I'm powerless over and what makes my life unmanageable 31 and a half years later is a little different than what it was like when I was brand new. Some of the things are the same. I'm still powerless over being a compulsive overeater, but it hasn't shown up in my food behaviors for many, many years. On the other hand, there's things I did yesterday that I probably need to look at and address. So the steps and that process of working the steps and being rigorously honest is part of my day. I mean, I think that program, um, ideally, is kind of like brushing your teeth. 
You may or may not feel like brushing your teeth every day, but probably most of us do it twice a day. We don't think, do I want to or not? It's just what we do. And then we get to have teeth that, you know, are, look more or less like teeth. Um, and if we don't do that, then the result is probably not going to be a very healthy you know, mouth. And I think of program like insulin for diabetics. And I'm not a diabetic, so I don't know this from my personal experience, but I'm pretty sure you can't take enough insulin last week or the week before to cover you for today or next week. You have to keep being attentive and monitoring of the recovery tools, just like insulin, so that I can be okay today. And I get to live free. I think that is, you know, the biggest change, besides that I don't compulsively overeat, that I get to live comfortably in my own skin is a complete miracle. Um, five minutes, right? Thank you. Um, because that just wasn't even, it wasn't even on the list of options when I came here. I didn't know that I wasn't doing that. So it would be, if you don't really know what the problem is, it's very hard to fix it. And the problem was, you know, kind of how I thought of myself and how I thought about life and how I related to you from that place of defectiveness. And so everything was kind of colored by, you know, it's like shit-colored glasses, excuse the language. You know, I just couldn't see things as they truly were. And of course I couldn't really connect with you because I wasn't connected to myself. But I didn't know that, so it was kind of a conundrum. In any case, what I've gotten here is pretty much everything. Because not only am I free with myself, but I'm free to be able to connect to other people. I had the gift of, you know, a pretty dramatic career change as a result of my recovery. And I love what I do. And it's very fulfilling. And I don't have to worry every three months or six months, am I going to get fired because somebody else, 99 other people want my job. Um... And I get to do what I used to do that I also love, but I don't have to worry about, am I making a living doing that? And I get to have people in my life that really know who I am. I love being a sponsor, and I still have a sponsor. Um, and helping, you know, I, I never sponsor more than three people because I think being a sponsor requires attentiveness and time, and I don't want to promise something that I can't give. So I love watching people on their journeys. To me, it's a real, I mean, people say it from the podium a lot, you know, it's an honor and a privilege, but it really is. To see people's lives transform, I mean, who gets to do that? We work really hard to get the promises of this program. And they do come true because of that work. It may or may not look like what you think it's supposed to look like. For sure, my images in the beginning are not how my life is today. But I didn't know to want to be comfortable in my own skin. I didn't know to want to have honest, 
heart-to-heart connections with other human beings. I didn't know that you could tell the truth and be accepted. So I couldn't have imagined those gifts coming true or those promises coming true. But really, all of the promises have come true. And that doesn't mean I don't have crummy days, like life is life. The tools of the program help me deal with crummy days and great days and be appreciative, even of the crummy days. Um, I haven't had to go through anything really kind of anguishing for several years. But the last time I did have to go through something that caused me deep, deep pain for a period of time, I learned because of these tools and this program and people like you guys to even appreciate that. It was kind of weird. But I realized that this emotion that was very, very uncomfortable connected me to humanity. Because we all have that deep, deep emotion at times. And that it wasn't bad. It was just extremely uncomfortable. And learning the difference between, you know, bad and something is wrong and just I feel quite uncomfortable, that is a gift too. And the only way you can get it is by feeling uncomfortable and learning that. So the entire kind of cycle of learning about being me and getting to be me with you and being one among many is all a result of these tools and this process. And I really can't thank you enough for sharing your your gifts with me. Thanks. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders, that my opinion is my own and not that of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And I will restate the question after it's asked for the podcast. Okay. Hi, uh, um, thank you for your share. It was wonderful. You're welcome. And you talked a lot about phone calls and outreach, and community is such a large part of this program. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about the community with the program and the outreach. Sure. Um, so in 31 years, I've had a lot of different relationships to the community of OA as a whole and I would say for the first 10 years at least maybe 15 I was really active and really involved Um, for the first few years like maybe five or ten I did the OA play I was actively involved in the birthday party I always had a service commitment that has not changed I always have a service commitment Now, I attend several different programs, so I may not have one in each program, but I pretty much always have one because I think it's important to give back, and also it's a way of making sure that I stay connected. Um, I've had groups of friends that met on a regular basis, whether we were talking about recovery 
directly or we were just indirectly being in recovery, having fun. Um, I remember early on, it was very kind of psychologically hard to accept that I needed to be one among many in OA because I judged, of course, everybody else as harshly as I judged myself. But I also knew that I really had nowhere else to go. And if I went to, whether it was the meeting or the, you know, comedy show or the whatever, that I would have a good time. Like I knew that even while I was judging everybody harshly and giving us all an F. Um, So I kind of overrode that quite a bit. Um, I was persistent. Uh, I remember years and years ago making like 35 phone calls when I was really desperate and getting like three back and being so mad and I remember going to a meeting and just needing you know support and like I had three years at the time or whatever and I was the one with the longest abstinence by far and I mean the universe is very ironic sometimes in how it works in terms of getting us active and going but again I think staying connected whether it's more or less um, in whatever program and I'm, is always important. And I have never not done that. Thank you. Um, you mentioned doing a daily 10th step. What format do you do? How do you do it? Is it a formal thing? I have had various versions of 10th steps. Um, currently, I just do it online and send it to, you know, my 10th step buddy. And, um, you know, this one is kind of straight out of the big book. Where was I selfish, self-centered, dishonest, or afraid? Um, And then if I did anything else that I feel uncomfortable about, I'll just add that in there. Um, Typically, I write a sentence at least on each thing because typically each day there's at least one thing I did that was selfish and one thing that I did that was self-centered. And it might be the same thing. Um, often it has to do with how I've been uh, treating my husband um, who gets the best and the worst of me, I'm happy and sorry to say, um, and learning kind of patience and compassion towards myself and others is still a lesson that is very difficult. I've done different kinds of 10th steps where I called somebody. I've included, um, you know, like a food diary as part of that 10th step, just in terms of being honest and turning things over. Um, and I've had periods of time when I didn't do anything. And, like, I get back to it at some point. Hi. Um, you spoke about... Uh since you were young, I think you were on some sort of a spiritual quest, even though you may not have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that and how now you have a, a, what's your relationship with a Sure. And I realize I've totally forgotten to repeat the question. So this is a question about spirituality and my journey and my relationship to spirituality now. Um, so Obviously, I started with thinking that if there was a God, and I use God as kind of an overview, because um, I don't have a, I, I just can't do the beard guy in the sky. Like, I just, I can't do that. Um, but when I was little, I wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure. Um, maybe somebody's living up there in a big chair. But in any case, I knew that that hated me, and that I was, you know, doomed. But 
at the same time, I've always, I mean, many of us are quite sensitive. I've always been very perceptive, which is sometimes hard. And I've always had awareness that is, I will say, outside our five senses awareness. Um, it's not like you know, always walking around in some you know fabulous trance state or anything, but I know things that it's not obvious how I know them, or I connect to things that I've learned over time. Like not everybody does that, and I've always attributed that to something kind of spiritual, whether I called it that or not. Um, and so, as a, a child, I mostly read. Um, about different religions or different spiritual paths. Um, I mean, everything from, you know, religious books that everybody would know what those are to books on channeling and books on, you know, all sorts of things that were considered paranormal or whatever. Um, I tried attending over, you know, the years, especially in recovery, different religious groups, um, things that I was familiar with and things that I wasn't. And I couldn't, none of the, I'll say the dogma, none of the kind of teachings and the stories that they offered really spoke to me. Um, I just, I just, it didn't fit with my perceptions. And so what I have now is a higher power that I do not understand. And one of my friends in recovery, who has many more years than me, talks about the swirling atom theory of God. And I know that, you know, we're basically all made up of carbon molecules. And so are the stars. And that connection to the planet as a whole means a lot to me when I let myself really feel that. That means that we're not separate. We're all involved here, and we're all becoming who we are. One of my favorite AA speakers um, on a tape I heard 100 years ago said this story about somebody going into heaven, and the only question that God had for the person was, did you become you? And to me, that is profoundly spiritual. And being here and doing this and being who I am in life is like I see that as my job in a way to become the most me I really can be and the most authentic or real me and to by doing that I don't have to talk about it but encouraging the rest of the planet to be truly them whether I agree with you or disagree with you or like whatever the thing is or don't like the thing is that you know, we're all here, and we're all becoming. So that's my spirituality today. And sometimes I have a very profound spiritual experience where I, where I actually feel that connection to kind of everyone and everything, but that doesn't happen on a regular basis. Um, and maybe when I am more spiritually evolved, I'll get to live in that. That'd be cool. And uh, you spoke a lot about your food plan. And um, have you ever had an experience where uh, you eat a certain food and you kind of become obsessed with it and you know you're using it to 
cope your feelings or numb out? And how did you get out of going to that food? Okay, so this is about being abstinent but having food obsessions, basically, or food cravings. You mentioned that 5% that you sometimes Right, right. So 5% of the time I might eat cake or bread or things like that that I crave. And when I choose to eat them, I pretty much know that I'm going to have a week worth of cravings, at least. And it might be not so bad. It might be really bad. And I have to be willing to experience that and not continue to go to those foods because the more I do them, the more the obsession and the more the craving. And I know that's how my body works. And I understand when people say they can't do a 5% eat those things because that's just too intense and not they're not willing to go through that or they might fall down the rabbit hole. Um, so... When I choose to do that, I have to be in a fit spiritual condition, and I have to know that it is okay to have one, fill in the blank, um, not all of them, and that it's a very contained experience. Um, And then I have to be willing to do a lot of work if the cravings are intense, meaning, you know, multiple phone calls a day, make sure that I'm going to meetings more even than I typically do, which is about three a week. Um, And sometimes I have to take those foods. I mean, I've had foods that I didn't eat for a long time. And there are still foods that I, I mean, I say 5%, but it might be 0.5% that I choose because it's just not worth it. It doesn't taste that good. And I don't want a serving. I want all of them. And then I'll have go get some more of whatever they are. So there's certainly things that I choose not to have pretty much ever. But if I want to, it's not a forbidden thing for me. So hopefully that answers your question. Okay, so um, I've had many sponsors over the years. I think in the first couple years I had about four because I kept picking my mother. And I love my mother. (laughs) I love my mother, but she would not be a good sponsor, at least not for this kind of recovery. Um, But I didn't really know that at the time. And then I would call them and lie and say I was eating, you know, protein, vegetable, and grain. And I knew it was Mexican food with unlimited chips. Um, And I was like, okay. So the first sponsor I had that I had for a long time, and then she moved away, which is why I picked another one. I picked Carol because she shared about judging someone in an elevator whose shoes and purse did not match. Now, remember, this was in the 80s, so matching was, you know, more of a thing. Um, And I so related. And she had like a year. And that seemed like forever to me. So basically, I kind of exactly what it says in our literature is find someone who has what you want, do what they did, and maybe you'll get it too. Um, and Carol had what I wanted. She was smart. She had an interesting job. She clearly had a very similar way of thinking about the world as I did. And she was abstinent. Um, the sponsor that I've had for many, many, many years now um, is more of a, a buddy. 
Um, and different sponsors work different ways. And as a sponsor, I have worked different ways with different sponsees. Um, some I become pretty close friends with and have been friends with for a long time. Um, some, it's really, we work the steps together and that's kind of it. Um, I care about them. It's just that we don't have a strong relationship outside of that. But in terms of picking somebody, I would say pick somebody who has their life halfway together, who has a little bit of time, and if they've had five years or so, three to five years of abstinence, they've probably had to go through some hard things and stayed abstinent. And so I think that's also really useful because I want to know that you can be 20 years abstinent and go through, I don't know, whatever, a death or something painful and still be abstinent, um, not just the good times. Um, and for some people, the good times are harder than the not good times. But So if they have a sponsor themselves and if they work the steps in writing and will help you work the steps in writing, I think that's kind of the bottom line. Time? No, not time. Oh, not time. Okay. Oh, you have a question. Thank you for your share. And um, you shared about being born with the feeling of being defective. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume you've made some progress in the area, but I'm just wondering if it ever crops up again and how you work uh-huh. No, nothing's all gone. That's I mean, my belief is that nothing is ever gone. It may be, you know, from ninety nine point nine percent down to point one most of the time. It's kind of like my food cravings. Like, really, they're point one one. I don't know. They're really low most of the time. So feeling, I say, ugly and defective because I kind of went together in my mind. Um, does crop up, um, usually in a situation where I'm judging myself and coming up lacking and comparing my insides to your outsides. Um, I remember being in an exercise class, I don't know, five or ten years ago, and the woman in front of me had what I thought was the perfect body. Of course, she was an 18-year-old woman, like from Thailand. (laughs) I will never have that body. And... I didn't feel defective at that moment because it was kind of hilarious. But when that comes up, I have to remind myself that, you know, who I am today and the fact that I like myself and live free includes being born with a birth defect. And that the gift I give the world in being me includes those very difficult, painful experiences Um, some of the most miserable people I know have looked the best on the outside and been able to buy their own reality. And they're not, I mean, they're worse off by far than me. So I have to, you know, look at people. I heard somebody say this once. I don't know who it was, but what if I just looked at people like I looked at trees? Like I don't judge the tree because the branch is going this way and not that way. Like it's a tree. What if I looked at everybody else, including myself, like that? And then we're all just fine the way we are. Okay.